Pastor Xavier Reese explains the difference between knowing the gospel and believing it. A person must believe in him. The word believe there is to entrust oneself to. You've got to do it. Don't be satisfied to say, I've heard the gospel. I know the gospel. I've seen the gospel word. You've got to say, I have heard it. I have seen how it works. And I have embraced it myself. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The gospel simply means the good news. Good news for whom, you might ask? Well, in a study titled, The Gospel is for Sinners, Pastor Xavier not only tells the who, but the what, the why, and the when, as he uncovers the nature of the gospel as we continue a study we began last time from Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, in his call to preach the gospel, focuses here on the nature of the gospel. First, to proclaim the potential of the gospel of salvation. Verse 15. It has the power to save. Secondly, to provoke others to trust the gospel for their salvation. You see, you present it clearly. Now, you give them a living example. You're the proclaimer, but you're the example. Paul was to provoke people regarding the gospel of salvation by the mercy God had imparted to him. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy. He had obtained mercy because he was the chief of sinners, and God loves sinners. Too often, Christians as well as churches proclaim a gospel that is anti-sinner rather than anti-sin. We want sinners to come. We invite sinners. We want to see them hear the gospel. We preach against sin, not against sinners. The mercy imparted to Paul was less than he deserved, not what he deserved. You know God is gracious, long-suffering willing to pardon. That's why Jonah ran away in Jonah 4 too. He ran away from Nineveh. He didn't want to go because he knew God would forgive him. The word mercy is related to one's misery and distress, receiving pity and compassion. When you're truly merciful and the person is in such state, you don't consider their person, their worth, their reputation, nothing. And you are so touched by their condition that you even Stoop down to them and your voice condescends to them out of pity and compassion. Almost what the old King James calls your bowels of mercy, your move from within, your, your, your gut, you're just torn because you feel so much for this person that you have to help. That's the word. The imparting of mercy sees a man or a woman in their misery and their state of need despite who they are, and it reaches out 
the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the religious person, the Levite, and so on and so forth. They all walked in the side. The Samaritan went and took care of this man. That's a picture of what God did for us. That's a picture of what we are to do for others. He had obtained mercy because he had done it ignorantly, he says. Mercy is imparted where there is spiritual blindness, despite of the deeds. Mercy is less than you deserve. Be careful you don't get to the place and say, well, you know, that's not fair. You know, wait, wait, wait. And you start talking, you, you want to get what you deserve? If you do, you won't be here next Sunday. <laughs> the unbeliever is spiritually dead and trespassed in sins, Ephesians 2, 1 says. Mercy comforts the individual with, from their personal guilt to impart personal compassion and mercy and salvation in Titus 3, 5. And then in Matthew 18, 33, remember the servant who was forgiven those billions of dollars? And then he took a servant that owed pennies to him, and he was recalled. He says, should you not have had compassion and mercy on him, having received it? Listen, that parable is not there for us to say, oh, I can't believe it. That parable to say, oh, that's me? That's what that parable is there for? Notice, secondly, Paul was to provoke people regarding the gospel of salvation by the long-suffering of God towards him, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering. God's long-suffering is one of his attributes which enables him to exercise full extent of forbearance with sinful man. There is no one more patient than God. God was long-suffering in spirit regarding Paul's blasphemous speech, which communicated injurious words. Our tongue, the words, he's already told us in verse 13 of chapter 1, his words. And so has God been with those of the past and those of the present. God was long-suffering regarding Paul's persecution. As he pursued, terrorized, imprisoned and put Christians to death. That's his deeds, his words and his deeds. And then God was long-suffering regarding his insolence. This speaks of his attitude. See, you might say, well, words, I'm okay, deeds, I'm okay, which I know you're not, but I'll let you slide. But then when we get to attitudes, I nail you. Because now I'm speaking about your miserable heart. Now we're talking about only what God can see. See, all of us fall short. Those of a proud attitude whose hearts are hard and set in their ways. The biblical history is a witness to God's long-suffering, beginning with Noah, the days of Noah, Pharaoh, Israel, Samuel, Samson, you, me. <laughs> long-suffering. In fact, it leads us to repentance, Romans 2.4 says. The evidence to be shown in Paul was, look at all long-suffering. Not some, all. The extent of God's patience with sinful man was to be seen in Paul. Because he was such a, a, a religious zealot, and he had gone to such an extreme, thinking he was doing service to God in word and deed and in attitude. Pretty good example for me to look at if I want to see what grace can do. What type of person can the gospel save? Notice thirdly, Paul was to provoke 
people regarding the gospel salvation by his former life, revealing the kind of people that could be saved. He nails it here as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul was to be a model of those who needed salvation and could obtain salvation. The word pattern means a prototype, an outline, a blueprint, or a sketch of an artist. The people who can obtain salvation are not limited to moral, upright people who are religious. It is for all who are lost. That's entire humanity. All. The people for who Christ died for were who? The ungodly, the sinners. Romans 5, 6 through 8 tells us that. He didn't die for the good people. There are no good people. I've told you often, finish the sentence, good for nothing. <laughs> Paul was to be a model of how they were to obtain salvation. See, it's not, okay, you can be saved, but then how? Here it is. A person must believe in him. The word believe there is to entrust oneself to. You've got to do it. Now, he said it in the previous verse. He nails it again. Why? Because it's a very important step in salvation. Don't be satisfied. Just say, I've heard the gospel. I know the gospel. I've seen the gospel word. You've got to say, I have heard it. I have seen our works. And I have embraced it myself. That's where God wants to lead you to. To confess your sin to Jesus Christ. To be sure that your sin is forgiven. Not one will ever be mentioned. To be sure that he can change your life. To be sure that you have received eternal life. By the grace of God. Age abiding life. It speaks of a quality of life. God like life. Yes, it will never end, but the meaning in Scripture basically, first of all, is God-like and having the quality of that life that God can give. So simple. If each of us got what we deserve, we would be in trouble. None of us deserve it. That is the glorious thing about the gospel that no one can boast. We can all minister to each other. We can all talk with each other because... We all needed grace. None of us can boast. Jesus was asked if there were few that were saved. He said, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Luke 13, 24. Will not be able. In other words, you may not want to. But if you continue in that, I don't want to long enough then you can get to the place where you cannot. You cross that line where God says, enough. For sure, if you die, that's the line. But it certainly can happen prior to death. So we're warned. Each of us have received mercy from God if we're Christians in various areas of our lives. And God desires that we provoke other people regarding the gospel of salvation as he opens those doors for us to share in whatever area that may be. Just even as the lame man at the gate beautiful, you know, they were going by life, life as usual that day. Now, they passed this guy up hundreds of times with Jesus. Jesus never healed him. 
This one day they're going to temple and the guy is asking for alms and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And his heels were strengthened, leaped and walked and praised God. And, and they took that opportunity. God will open those doors. He will open those opportunities. We don't have to force them. In his timing, he'll always open those doors. Maybe you have a drug past. Maybe you have alcoholic past or a promiscuous, whatever it may be. God will use that to minister to others. You're an example of what the gospel can do. Each of us can provoke people as we share the long-suffering of God towards us and, and, and giving us that eternal life as a witness. Acts 1.8, I am his witness by the power of the Spirit of God. And so I need to be open to whatever God has, wherever I go. I don't go to bug people. I don't go to impose myself on people, but I want to be sensitive to God opening those doors. And if the heart is open, you'll see it. And if it's not, let it go. Just don't force it. He'll take care of it. Each of us have to provoke and can provoke people regarding God's salvation by a former life revealing that God saves sinners, not perfect people. And that we as Saved sinners are in constant need, listen, of mercy and grace still. Hebrews 4.16. Do not present yourself as having arrived. Present yourself on journey. Still in need of grace. Still in need of mercy. But saved. Different from being for being lost. The purpose of Paul's call to preach the gospel was to provoke others to trust the gospel for their salvation. Notice third and last, the purpose of Paul's call to preach the gospel was to praise God for providing such a gospel of salvation. This is the context of Paul's doxology, the gospel of salvation and its efficiency to reconcile men and women to God. Do not rip this verse from its context of these three verses. It is pointing back to what he has just talked about. Notice, first of all, Paul praised God for his person, not to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He declares God to be king eternal, who offers eternal life in the gospel of salvation. The quality of this king is eternal. It means the ages. The idea is of being perpetual. The Jew had the present age and the age to come. Paul acknowledges he is the king among many kings who have declared themselves to be kings, but he acknowledges him as superior to every other king because he is king of kings and lord of lords in the past, the present, and the future. In fact, he rules the affairs of man, and no one can say to him, what are you doing, according to Daniel 9, 4, 32-36. In fact, Jesus went about preaching the gospel of what? Calvary Chapel? No. The gospel of the kingdom. Matthew four twenty three. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Gabriel, if you recall, said of his kingdom... There would be no end, Luke 33. It's an eternal kingdom. He's an eternal king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He declares God to be immortal. 
who offers immortality through the gospel of salvation. The reference to immortality, as you know, it means non-decaying, in essence, in, in continuance. He's eternal. But notice also he declares God to be invisible, who offers an invisible kingdom by the gospel of salvation. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, who alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He hits it from another angle, but says virtually the same thing. The word visible or invisible is not hard to figure out. In the Greek, it means the same. It means you can't see it. It's not tangible. It's not touchable to an extent. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He told the women of Samaria in John 4, 24. The Holy Spirit teaches God's truth. He is invisible. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He teaches us spiritual things. The church is endowed with spiritual gifts that cannot be seen, but they can be seen in operation. They're gifts of the spirit. 1 Corinthians, you have 12, 13, and 14. He deals with those issues. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 4, and 1 Peter 3, 4, 10, 4, 9. Notice, secondly, that, God, that Paul praised God for his preeminence. Listen to these words. To God, who alone is wise. Now, the word preeminence is not found here, but I've used it because in the Greek it is found one time in Colossians 1.18, and it means this. To be first or hold the first place. And the only time found is in Colossians 1.18. This is key. He is preeminent. He is the only one that can hold that position. No one else. God is the only one of his kind revealed in the gospel of salvation. Through the law, Deuteronomy 6.4, Isaiah 43.11. Through 13, I am the only Savior. There's no one else besides me. I've never run into anybody. God... You know, over and over and over again, Isaiah, see, we just finished Isaiah, you know that, from chapter 40 on. He's the only one. Jesus is the image of God. He's the visible form of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. So Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we want to get a good view of what the Father's like, we must get a good view of Jesus. Jesus created all things, being God, in Colossians 1.16 and John 1.3. Jesus holds all things together, Colossians 1.17 says, otherwise everything would just blow up. He holds everything together. Jesus is the head of the church. Again, Colossians 1.18. And Jesus is the first of his kind to resurrect. And we will follow after him. Again, Colossians 1.18. And Jesus holds the supremacy because he is one of a kind. Colossians 1.18. No one like him. God is the only one who is all wise. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. Now notice thirdly that Paul praised God for his proper due. Listen to these words. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His proper due. God de deserves all honor for the gospel of salvation. The word honor means value, due, esteem, or reverence by virtue of rank or state of the office held. He alone promised redemption through his son. From the beginning, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. He reminded his people continually through the prophets in Genesis, Isaiah, Malachi, all of them to the New Testament fulfillment. He alone was true to his word by allowing a son to be incarnate and to die in our place. 
God deserves all the glory for the gospel of salvation. And the word glory there refers to splendor, to brightness. And it's often identified with some visible form. When used of man towards God, it refers to acknowledging and giving God recognition for who and what he has done and who he is. Just read Psalm 150. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. All wise. Now you must understand Paul's praise here wholeheartedly. His praise focuses on the eternal, not the temporal. His praise focuses on man's salvation from sin, not a life without problems or difficulties. His praise focuses on the transformation of a life, not a static one. His praise focuses on being used in the future, not in the past. That's good. Praising him. John Calvin said, praise is the best of all sacrifices and the true evidence of godliness. Do you, how do you begin your prayers? I begin with praise and thanksgiving. <laughs> it's a good start. Before I ask forgiveness, before I ask my, for my list. <laughs> praise. You and I as believers must never forget to praise God for his person. He's eternal. Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1, 23. He is God, not man, king, not servant, eternal, not temporal, spirit, not flesh. You and I owe praise to God for his preeminence in seeking the loss, according to Luke 19.10. He took the initiative to save you and myself. There's no one like him. He is the epitome of wisdom. You and I should praise God because it is his proper due. He just deserves it. In fact, later on, Paul will tell Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in good words of faith and good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, reminding the people of the things of God and the doctrine of God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's enough to praise him. And so the purpose of Paul's call to preach the gospel was to praise God for providing such a gospel of salvation. After Paul makes this thing, he turns around and says, oh, thank God for all this. He just, you know, can't contain himself. How about you? You taking your salvation, kind of, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, it's okay, it's cool. I'm going to heaven, yeah, no big deal. Hmm. Paul has given the purpose of his call to preach the gospel, focus on the nature of the gospel, consisting of these three elements, to proclaim the potential of the gospel of salvation. It can save anyone. To provoke others to trust the gospel for their salvation through our own life and to praise God for providing such a gospel salvation. And this has to be at all times. Just in awe of what God has done. And so, the gospel is for sinners. If you're not born again, you're a sinner. You need to bow your knee to the gospel. 
you need to praise God for what he has done and make him your own Lord. Pastor Xavier Reese, wrapping up our time together, summarizing three key elements of the nature of the gospel, as noted by Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, if we can get this informative message on the cornerstone of the Christian faith, the gospel, into your hands for additional study, and perhaps pass on to someone else that needs to hear it, all you need to do is contact us and mention the title, The Gospel is for Sinners. And all that was shared last time will be included as well for just $4 on CD. Now, that title again is The Gospel is for Sinners, or simply mention today's date when writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make a request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And join us for more Simple Truths from the Word of God next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com